Philippians 2, I'll read verses 1 through 11, uh, kind of pick it off where we left off, which was several weeks ago, and uh, can try to move forward. Again, Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in, humil- in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So early on in, in the passage in, in uh, chapter 2 here, Paul has been talking about being of one mind, we talk about the unity that he wants these individuals to experience. So I wanted to make sure that that we had a good grasp on that, and John MacArthur has uh, really good some really good things to say about that. So I wanted to begin with with what he says. So John MacArthur sets the context of Paul's call to unity in the church at Philippi. Perhaps the greatest danger facing the church is an attack on its source of authority, namely the Word of God. Spiritual apathy and a general coldness and indifference to biblical truth and God's standards of righteousness also pose serious risk. Such indifference is usually denied, often with an aura of self-deceptive sincerity, but it attacks the spirituality of the church. Equally to be feared is whatever attacks the unity of the church. All of these can disrupt, weaken, and destroy a church by causing discord, disharmony, conflict, and division. When Paul closed his last letter to the Corinthians, he expressed his fear of sins that might destroy unity. He says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come it may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. He also feared sins that destroy the purity of the church. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. True spiritual unity is grounded in the unfathomable unity of the Trinity itself. The foundation for believers, oneness, is the unity God granted in answer to Jesus' prayer, that his people, (coughs) from John 17, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That prayer was answered when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and afterward to indwell all believers, bringing to them the eternal life in which all believers are partakers. That essential unity of all believers in the body of Christ should be lived out in practice, because fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives. The challenge to preserve the unity of the Spirit is constant. A divided Factious and bickering church is spiritually weak. It therefore offers little threat to the devil's work and has little power for advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Endeavoring to maintain or to restore the spiritual unity of a congregation is easily the most pressing, difficult, and constant challenge for its leaders. Paul's concern here is not about doctrines, ideas, or practices that are clearly unbiblical. It is about interpretations, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice. Such issues should never be allowed to uh, foment controversy within the body of Christ. To insist on one's own way in such things is sinful because it senselessly divides believers. To humbly defer to one to one another on secondary issues is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. It is a mark of maturity and love that God highly honors because it promotes and preserves harmony in his church. So with that as kind of our background, I want to begin to move through uh, more of what uh, Paul says here. And so what we'll do is we'll be, pick it up in verse 3. We've covered the first two verses. Again, there's been a while ago. But Paul gets into where he, he's making some really very simple statements. But statements that should challenge us and help us uh, in understanding what he's talking about. So let me give you a, a thought to kind of hold in the back of your head as we work our way through this uh, chapter. And that's this. Many times... People believe that when you're having difficulty in your life, whatever that difficulty may be, you're having trouble, whether it's with other people or you're having maybe emotional difficulties or whatever, whatever the case may happen to be, and things aren't going well. And often coupled with that is the fact that we may not be in the Word as often as we think we should or we would like. So the idea is, is that we need to get into a good Bible study, which is not a bad thought. But the problem can be, and I think often is, is this. We believe that getting into a Bible study is going to fix everything. It, it doesn't do that. It's almost as if we, it's almost like believing like there are those who have, that follow other religions that believe that if they, if they go through certain chants, say certain things, maybe put themselves in a particular state of mind, that they will experience inner peace and they may for a while and they believe that that is the answer to them either finding fulfillment or being able to move on and move past or beyond whatever the difficulties happen to be it doesn't work that way but there's a very strong belief that somehow doing certain things in a certain way will bring that about and Christians can do the same thing so Bible study is really important obviously as what we everything we do is centered around scripture and studying the Bible but the most important aspect of that is you and I ingesting the Word of God so that we begin to submit ourselves to what it actually says. So it's not a bunch of good ideas and enable us to figure out what's going on in someone else's life, though you might be able to. The, the key is the Bible, again, is viewed as being a mirror first. We want to look at ourselves, look within. The idea is for us to change, to uh, choose, to submit to what the Bible says. Not just agreeing with the idea that it's true, but that it's true to the point that we actually do something with it. Many doctors will tell you this. I, I remember I was reading an article by a diabetes doctor. The diabetes doctor was saying that he was expressing the same kind of frustration that many other internists like himself had with their patients and that is they spend time with their patients 
They're able to correctly diagnose what their difficulties are. They're able to help them plan out uh, a way to deal with the diabetes, depending on what, how severe it is, but how to survive with it and how to flourish with it. And what all the doctors agree on is that about 80 to 90% of their patients don't do what they say. They don't follow through. They may begin for a while, but they don't keep it up. Then they act surprised when things go bad. The doctors even tell them, especially those who have severe diabetes, if you don't follow what I say, we have to start cutting pieces off of your body. You know, we gotta start cutting off your toes. We gotta start cutting off your feet. We gotta start, you know, all these different things begin to happen. Sure enough, people come back and they'll say, I've done everything you've said and I'm still having this problem. But he says normally with a little bit of asking, probing with some questions, they've not been doing what you've said. Oh, they may have, but they haven't stopped doing all the other stuff. So one gentleman has begun to eat many more vegetables. He really has cut back on red meat. But he still has just as many donuts and cake as he had before, which is problematic for a diabetic. And so the idea there is that it's a, it's a human nature problem, and even more so because we know we have a sin nature. So when we work our way through these things, we do want to think in terms of ourselves. So, for example, verse 3, he says, it's very simple, do nothing from rivalry. And he says, or conceit. So you could read it, do nothing from rivalry, do nothing from conceit. That's it. So when you live your life, you do nothing in your life where you're trying to get back at someone or, or win a competition. Don't do that. That shouldn't be in your mind. Don't do anything out of conceit, thinking that you're better than others. The idea is that, well, I want to teach that Sunday school, that Sunday school class. Why? Now, you may not say this, but you might be thinking, because I know I can do better than so-and-so. Well, that's not a very good reason. That's not the point. Do nothing from that. Now, you may know for a fact that you're better at, let's say, teaching than someone else. But that still doesn't have to be why you're doing something. You don't, want, you, don't want, you don't want that to be your motivation. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So that's the thing. So don't do anything out of, out of a sense of rivalry. And it, and it means don't, nothing. That means nothing. There's nothing that you can do. Whether you want to call it spiritual, whatever, business, whatever. Don't do it out of that. Don't do it out of conceit. But live your life in humbleness. How do you do that? You count or you consider others more significant than yourselves. He's not saying that you're a worm. He's not saying that they are more valuable than you. That's not the point. The point is, is how you think. You need to look at others, and no matter how you feel, you need to begin to at least treat them as if they are more significant than you. Eventually, your feelings will follow. It's not a competition as to how even humble you can be. That's not even, that, that would be ridiculous because that actually would be arrogance. But the idea is, is that that's how he wants, that's how God wants us to view other people. And we don't. We view some people that way, the people that we like, people that we're friends with, we count them as being more significant in, in, one, in one sense than, than, than ourselves. You know, we, we put their needs above ours because we like them. We don't do that to everybody. There are some people that are really hard to get along with. There are some people that are hard to like, especially when you know and you're correct that they themselves are arrogant 
or you know, they don't care about other people, or they're this, or they're that, or whatever the case may happen to be. And so because we recognize those things, and maybe even understand that we are correct in our estimation of their character and what have you, their behavior, we then believe and feel that we're justified by treating them, whether it's poorly or at least maybe in, in one kind of way, less than us. So this is what we need to be praying about, asking God to help us to examine our lives. Lord, I want to be humble. You should know if you are at least living in a humble way. Right? That's, that's the, obviously, that's not where you stand there and say, yep, I took an evaluation of myself and I am indeed humble. All right? that's, that obviously would be the wrong way to go about it. At the same time, though, we can look at ourselves honestly, and hopefully you'll see greater humility in your actions than before. You should be able to see how you treat people or think about the way you feel about others. And again, you want to make sure that you're thinking about those that you don't know very well or those that maybe you don't like. You know, it's, it, the idea is not to compare and figure out what your character is like based on all the people that you like and how you treat them. That's not going to get you very far. So this is what he begins with. Remember that we are new creatures in Christ. God has transformed our hearts. We are capable of doing this because Christ has changed us. Now, we can't do this in the flesh. So the thing is, is that if you, have, if you don't have a habit in your life of being in the Word of God on, a, on at least a regular basis, right? I'm not going to, you know, you can, there's all these plans of, you know, how you can do that. Right? It doesn't matter which plan you follow. Just follow one. All right? So if you're in the Bible four days a week, terrific. Be disciplined and make sure it's four days a week no matter what. If it's seven days a week, great. Seven days a week. And if you miss a day, you miss a day. Just don't miss the next day. And keep at it. Right? If you do that, right, then, you, then you're going to be more successful in this. But if you don't do that, and, you're, and then you haphazardly attend church with other believers, you know, that's an important thing. I mean, God did command that. There's many reasons for us to gather together as believers to worship Him. So if we're not doing these Simple things, right? They can be hard because, you know, we're not always that disciplined. But they are simple. If we're not doing those things, then you're not going to be able to do this. We don't have the, the strength. We don't even have the motivation, I think, that will last more than three days of wanting to be humble in this way. But if we are continuing to allow God's Word to speak to us, which is what you're doing when you read the Bible on a regular basis. It's not magic, but it is transformative. Remember that the Bible is a living, a truly living and breathing document. God has, in essence, breathed life into it. This is what God has spoken. The words that he has given us, what he's preserved for us, he has preserved over thousands of years for you to read and for me to read. And no matter what you think in, in the Bible may be irrelevant, it's not irrelevant. You may not be able to figure out its relevancy to you today. That's unimportant. We believe what God said, we read the Word of God, and we remain in the Word of God. And what you'll find is that if we don't remain in the Word of God, it has little effect on us, and our problems can increase. If you remain in the Word of God, it doesn't mean that you're going to have less problems. You might, but you'll be able to handle those problems better. Your attitude will be better. 
Those you will not be defined by your by the difficulties that you're having. So we're not trying to paint this rosy picture that if we follow what the Word of God says and stay in the Word of God, that you're not going to have any kind of issues. You're going to have issues. You may even have a few more. You may you may have more tension in your family. Right? Just think about it. Uh, you come across an individual who is truly zealous for the Word of God and truly seeks to follow what the Word of God says. Often, people hate that because that person's existence, just their existence, makes me look bad. Right? I, I don't like that. Be around an individual who is able to quote all kinds of Bible verses, and sometimes we don't like that. They think they're so good because they can quote half the Bible. And we're unable to. Now, I have met people who can quote the Bible and they have no clue what they're doing. Right? And they don't know anything. So that by itself really shouldn't bother us. However, um, it's not about us being jealous about that. The bottom line is, is that, that we need to follow what God says. And the way that we're going to do that is by being in the Word of God and being with other believers and spending time with God in prayer. There's no magic formula to that. There's no... You know, someone says, well, I discovered the magic to Bible reading. Okay? Don't read it, because that's, that's a lie. There's no magic to Bible reading. It, it's a very simple process, period. The main thing is to be disciplined, and that's hard. But once you get in the habit, all right, that's a good thing. But don't follow what the world says, because sometimes the world says this. Well, I read the Bible, but I just do it out of habit. So I just don't think I get anything out of it. Okay? That's the devil. Well, he wants you to think that way. If you don't have some, some emotional connection all the time, somehow you think it's, a waste, it's not a waste of time. Right? When you were growing up, you didn't always like all the meals your mom made you. But you ate them anyway. You didn't say, well, this is a waste of time. I don't need to eat this. No, if you're hungry, you're going to eat it. Right? And it, you may not know the value that it has, but it's got value. Right? It's important. So we want to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to think that way. One of the, I've, I've actually talked about this with my wife the other day and some other people over the past couple of weeks. One of the things that really it bothers me, and maybe it's just my problem, but you hear this sometimes on the radio, where individuals will say something like this. I read my Bible today. It was so glorious. I just It's like I could feel God's presence right there next to me. As I read the Bible, and I was just overwhelmed with compassion for everyone. And, and I, when I prayed, I, I, I prayed, and I, I thought I'd only prayed for 10 minutes. But when I looked at the clock, I had prayed for an hour. So what are many people thinking? Well, that didn't happen to me. What's wrong with me? I, I, what are they reading? I, 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 I want to feel that. And we get all caught up in... Now, if somebody experiences that, terrific. Good for them. Right? But that is not maybe the norm. It doesn't have to be. Whether you feel God's presence or not, isn't, that's not the point. The point is that we're ingesting the Word of God. We're all made up different emotionally anyway. Right? So if you feel nothing, and the person next to you feels something, both people can be experiencing the presence of God. And we want to make sure we recognize that. Uh, we don't, and we don't want to get caught up where we're trying to, you know, I'm not saying if you've done this, but people have. They will sometimes exaggerate their time in the Word of God to sound like so-and-so. They don't, maybe they don't really mean to. You just kind of get caught up in the moment. 
And he's going, oh, I know what you mean. Oh, when I read the Bible yesterday, I felt like my heart was on fire. Of course, meanwhile, there's other guy saying, oh, my gosh, this person's feeling the presence of God. This person's heart's on fire. And I'm just, I read my Bible, and I'm like, how long is this going to take? <laughs> right? You can really feel like you're just really far from God. Uh, and so we just need to make sure that, that when we hear those things, you can be happy for them. But we're not all trying to have the same experience. But we do want to make sure that we're all in the Word of God. And so that's how we're going to, that's how we're going to do this. And my question is always going to be, to the degree, when, to the individual who says, my, I feel like my heart was on fire. Or I, I believe I, I can even feel the presence of God. Well, let's watch your life and see how you treat people over the next several days to see if that translates into your daily living. Yeah, Mike. It's kind of funny, too, is it really doesn't mention stuff like that in the Bible. It's not in there. You're right. Which is important. There is a lot about fear, though. Oh, yeah. People have, they come into the presence of God or an angel and they're in terror. That happens. Uh, so I'm, I'm waiting for the guy to say that. Oh, when I read my Bible, I felt like the presence of God, and I fell like a dead man. <laughs> and I was terrified, and I didn't want to move, and I couldn't speak. There you go. Now we're on track. <laughs> all right, verse 4. So he continues to explain how all this is going to work out, all right? So we want to make sure that in humility, we count or consider others to be more significant than ourselves. All right, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. So it's not wrong for you to be interested in, in the things that affect you. You know, we all need clothes and food and shelter, all those things. We need all that stuff. All right, there's nothing wrong with us being concerned about those things. But what he says, he, make, he says, so yeah, look in your own interest, but also the interests of others. So that's simply, once again, caring about other people. If you consider them to be more significant than you, then you're going to be thinking on those terms. You want to make sure that they have transportation, housing, clothes, whatever. It doesn't mean they have to have as many as you. All right, let's say you're wealthy, okay? I know it's always a touchy subject because no matter how wealthy you are, we always say, oh, I'm not wealthy, whatever. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that somebody may only have two pairs of pants and four shirts. And you may have 20 pairs of pants and 80 shirts. But they have clothes, so it's okay. There's no reason to feel guilty for that. But if they don't have any, or maybe they have much less than that, then you should help them if you can. But you, you should be looking out for their interest. That's the idea here. Um, and that is getting it. Now, primarily, I believe, based on the context, um, uh, this, is, this is looking out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not going out and feeding the world. I'm not saying feeding the world's wrong, but the idea here is that we're looking at our family. And the Bible even says that in Timothy. If you don't look out for the interests of your own family, you're worse than an infidel. I mean, that's what it says. So you need to be concerned about your family, your blood family and your, your spiritual. We need to be very concerned uh, about each other. That's our priority. And that's what he's getting at here. And then he moves on in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, right? So that means have this mindset or have this attitude. He said he wants us to have, he wants all of us to have the same mindset or the same attitude. And he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So because of the presence of Christ in our life, we then should have and we can all have the same attitude. Then he mentions, after he mentions Christ, he's going to explain 
what this mindset is based on Christ and what he did and how he was. Verse 6, who, in other words, speaking of Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equity with God a thing to be grasped. So when he says a thing to be grasped, <coughs> he's not talking about you and I grasping that truth. It's not what he means. The idea is this. When Jesus Christ came as a man, remember he was still the son of God. He's still God. So technically, because he's God, wherever he went, everyone should respect him, should reverence him, should worship him. Absolutely. He, the fact that he was equal with God, the fact that he was God, was not something that he clung to. So the only way I could figure out how to explain that would be that identity about himself, which was true, he didn't cling to that. All right, there's a, um, there's a, a collection of writings called the Lost Books of Eden. They're not lost because we have them. Uh, and they're not scripture, even though some will say they are. They're not. And there's some odd stories, supposedly, about Jesus. I don't think any of them are true, but they're in there. And one of them is a story where Jesus is, I guess, a teenager, and he's walking from one town to another, which would be common. And there's an old man coming the other direction, and there's a narrow, narrow passageway. And as they, as they go by each other, the old man bumps into Jesus. And according to the story, Jesus kind of pushes the man back a little bit and says, Don't you know who I am? You don't do that to me. Boom! And a lightning bolt comes from heaven, zaps this man, and there's nothing left but a pile of ashes. All right? Now, I would say that story is probably not true. All right? Based on the character of Jesus that we have seen in the four Gospels. So the idea there with that is, is that he wasn't clinging to this idea that he was Christ and everyone should worship him. People disrespected him all the time. Remember, they accused him of being demon-possessed. And when they accused him of being demon-possessed, he did tell them that there was, you know, that blast of the Spirit would not be forgiven. He told them that. But he didn't bring judgment down on him right then because he had come to what? He had come to die. He had come to fulfill the will of his Father. He, and he was going to wait for his Father to exalt him. He wasn't going to do it himself. So this attitude that he had, this, he didn't have to cling to it. So you and I, what that means is this. Number one, I don't have to cling to the idea that I'm a man and because I'm my I'm a own person, I should be respected. I don't have to cling to that. I, I, I don't have to cling to the fact that I'm a pastor. Right? I don't scold people who speak disrespectfully to me. I've seen pastors do that. Don't you know who I am? You don't speak to me that way. I am the pastor. In fact, I even heard a guy once, he was a, uh, I was coaching football. The pastor of the church was on the sidelines, which is a bad idea. And he was getting on the ref. Who knows why? But he was giving the ref a hard time. And the ref finally turned around and said, I'm going to throw a 15-yard penalty on the bench if you don't shut your mouth. And the pastor said, don't you know who I am? I am the pastor and named the church. The ref turned around without missing a beat. He said, I don't care if you're the pastor of the church of my big foot. He says, you open your mouth again, it's a flag. And the pastor opened his mouth. He went, ah, flag went up. 15-yard penalty. And, of course, then he, he pointed. He looked at the head coach. The head coach knew what was going on. He says, you need to control your bench, especially that man right there. <laughs> 
All right, so the point is, is we don't have to, we don't cling to those things. All right, it's okay that we recognize maybe someone is disrespectful. Is that wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. But I'm not going to lose it because of that. I, I don't, I don't draw my sense of well-being from what other people think about me. Because I can't control that anyway. I can't control it. And there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like you. And there's always going to be somebody, thank goodness, who will like you. <laughs> All right, so we can hold on to that. But the idea is, is that we don't have to cling to any of those things. No matter what your position is in the world, in business, uh, financially, socially, uh, maybe it's your athletic ability, whatever happens to be, you don't have to, we don't cling to those things. Because what's important? Other people. When Christ came, his concern was us and our salvation. And he was going to accomplish that. He spoke honestly. He didn't allow people to get away with stuff, especially teachers. He spoke very forthrightly with them. But he was still kind and gracious and forgiving, understanding. Yet doing all of that without ever communicating the idea that he was condoning sinful behavior. Right? And you may say... He was able to do all that because he was the son of God. I grant you, that's a big advantage. <laughs> all right? But he was still 100% man. And he, st- and he still lived in the way that's described here in Scripture. So he is our example. He's my Savior, but he's also my example. I am to be like Christ. And so whatever it is that we, whatever idea we had where we cling to that, we, we need to get rid of that. Um, I've told this story before, so... Um, I'll do it again. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a brag thing, but when I played football and sports early on in my life, I, did, I had trophies. They give you trophies for all kinds of things. So we were moving uh, from an apartment to another apartment early on in our marriage, and it was kind of a weirdly designed house we were moving into, but nonetheless, it was very roomy. And so after we had everything unpacked, I was, Cindy had made lunch. I was eating sandwiches, and there was this one box left of stuff we had to unpack. And it was a box of all my trophies. Where are you going to put them? Well, the way the house was constructed, there was the kitchen, which was big, but that's a weird place to put your trophies. And nobody normally wants to put the trophies in the bedroom because nobody can see them. The whole point is you want people to see them. But the only other room left besides the bathroom was the living room. That seemed to be a bit forward. Like, you know, it's like, you walk in the house, da-da, look how great I was, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. It was the past, but that's, what, that's what's going on. And so I was, I mean, I'm struggling with this. Like, I, I mean, where do I put them? And I'm really trying to figure out where can they go where you accomplish two things. People will see them, but it's not too obvious. How, how do you do that? That takes some cleverness. Well, I'm not very clever. And, I'm, and the, the design of the house made this really hard. And then it struck me. I, I began to feel overwhelmingly guilty about this idea because it was the first thing I wanted people to see. And so I picked up my favorite trophy. I won't tell you what it was for. But I got my favorite trophy, and I broke it. But I, but I also know my own weaknesses. So I knew that I broke it in half, that later I would maybe have second thoughts, go back in the trash, get my trophies, super glue it together, and may at least save them. So I didn't do that. I had to break it into smaller pieces. 
So it'd be really hard to, you know, like snap, 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 and snap kind of a thing. And the, and the great thing that was great was when, when I, it, it was actually it, embarrassingly hard holding that, that first trophy, getting ready to break it. Because I, I didn't want to, I could like, you know, you already know what you got to do and you don't want to do it. And then when it snapped, the second snap was easier, third snap was easier, and breaking the rest, not a big deal. Broke them, threw them away, zero regrets. I can tell my kids about what I did and the fun I had when I played football before and all that. I can tell other people if they believe me, fine, if they don't, no big deal. It's, it's, it's in the past, everybody's got stories, some true, some not so true, you know, about what they did in the past. And we can have fun and talk about it, but I didn't need that in my life. It is, it, we, I have enough problems with my ego. I don't need that. And so, but I was clinging to the idea that there was a point in time in my life when there was this thing I did called football and I was really good at it. And I was clinging to that. That was, it was almost like my identity. I, want, I wanted people to know. And then just after a while you feel stupid. Like, so what if they do know? And all you have to do is meet somebody who doesn't care about football to fix that. You know, like, yeah, I was da-da-da-da. They go, I don't even know what that is, but okay. <laughs> That's really like, Whoa. So the thing is, is that whatever it is in your life, all right, if, if you, you may not have anything, but maybe you do. All right, maybe it's being the smartest guy in the room or whatever it happens to be. We, we need to take an inventory and make sure that we are, we want to, we want to live in true humility. So we don't want to be false humility. All right, false humility can be just another way of being arrogant. We don't, and, and even the, and the person who's doing it may not maybe in, intend that. Somebody may come one day and play some extraordinary piece of music on the piano when we're having worship. And people walk up to that person afterwards and say, that was incredible. And then that person who plays says, ah, that was nothing. <laughs> really? Because I thought it was pretty spectacular. Right? Or you know, you, we say things, and we don't, we don't always mean to do that. But it's, again, it, it, can, it can come across really wrong. So there's nothing wrong with admitting, if you have certain talents and abilities, to admit that you have them. That's okay. Right? If you, if you golf really well, and you're a scratch golfer, all right? I scratch during golf, but I'm not a scratch golfer. All right? you, can, you can say that you are. You, you can do that without bragging or clinging to that idea. And so we need to make sure we do inventory in our lives as Christians. And maybe it may even be about your spiritual gift. And, you know, you use your spiritual gift for the Lord and for others, and that's great. And, and if others see you, terrific. It's okay. But if we're doing that, bring attention to ourselves. Or we want to be known for that, then we got a problem. So we want to follow the, the um, example of Christ here. So again, have this mindset, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to cling to. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, I believe the word order there is important. So he, it's not that he became a man and then became a servant. Him becoming a man was because he had become a servant in his heart. Kind of, that's how we would say it. Right? He had determined that he would obviously do what God the Father wanted to do. And so he came to serve others. That was his life, to serve other people, to serve us. In fact, Romans makes it really clear when you think about it. It says that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. And that, the phrasing there in the Greek language, where it says, while we were yet sinners, the emphasis uh, with that terminology there is that while we were in the midst of actively rebelling against God. So it's, it's emphasizing this idea that we were, we were in the midst of, in a sense, spitting in his face when he died for our sin. It, it wasn't where he waited for us to kind of calm down and relax and, and not be quite so rebellious. And then he says, now that you're calm, you know, I'm going to die for you. No, he's right smack in the middle of it. And so he, that again, emphasizes the greatness of his character and, and also emphasizes the uniqueness and the intensity of his being a servant. So that's the, that, so this is, this is the mindset then that we have with us. So it's not only that I'm not clinging to any identity, but that I, I want to take on the form of a servant. I want to be a servant to others. I want to be a servant to God. All right? A servant's not concerned about the way they feel. Right? You have feelings, but you're not concerned about the way you feel. So someone can say something to you, and it may hurt your feelings, but you don't allow that to dominate your attitude. You don't allow that to determine how you respond to that person. That's, in one sense, neither. now that's hard. You know, and for some of us, it's more, it's more difficult than others. But the point is, is that's what he's asking us to do. And uh, again, being born in the likeness of men. So he came as a human being. So he, like any other human being, he would get tired, he would get hungry. All those things uh, would happen to him. Then in verse 8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. So the idea was that he humbled himself in the beginning. And he, and he, and he was, he, because of his servant heart, he became a human being. And now that he's a human being, he humbled himself in a sense even more. So he didn't just humble himself in the sense that he was the son of God. As a human being, he humbled himself. And this humility is seen because it says that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the way that's worded is it's worded to accent um, what it means to die on a cross. Um, if, you, if you don't know this, in Roman society, some of you have heard this before, that uh, if you were a Roman citizen and you were guilty of a crime that required your death, you would never be crucified. Uh, you would be spared that because the suffering was so immense. Um, it's considered by many to be one of the, or maybe the cruelest, most painful way to die that man has ever invented. It's, it's, in, it's quite involved, and if you've not heard that, I will explain it to you again one day. But it's unbelievable what goes on in the body and what you experience. And then the Romans then tweaked it so that you would suffer even more. But also, because it was such a scandalous way to die, then, so if you went to high society parties in Rome, the topic of crucifixion would never be discussed. You would never talk about it. Because it would be considered to be, in a sense, pornographic. That would be the, the way to describe it. So if you had a, if you had a gathering of, of believers and everybody was on the up and up, we would consider that if, somebody, if someone suddenly started to discuss pornography, like, what, what are you doing? You don't do that. Right? In this group, you know, that's, that's, that's wrong. It's offensive. Right? So that's how crucifixion would be viewed. So when he says here that he became obedient to the point of death, and then says even death on a cross, that's what he's emphasizing, is that he, was, that he had humiliated himself to, in, to, to the, the greatest degree possible, a willingness to suffer that kind of death. And, and, of course, this attitude that's behind that 
than is the attitude that we are to have. So obviously he's not calling for you and I to, to offer ourselves up to be crucified. Right? That misses the point. The point is, is the humbleness that's required to do that. So the humbleness that we have, then it goes beyond just you and I in the flesh trying to be humble or play a humble person as far as like a part. You know, where you're humble in public, but at home, you know, you're a macho man or whatever. The idea is that you're truly humble wherever you are, that it comes from deep inside of you as a person. So that is what God requires of you and me. So again, that doesn't mean that you drag your knuckles and that you just kind of always have your head down and you always tell everybody that you're no good, that you're a worm and you have no talent and all that. doesn't mean that you cut yourself down uh, in these ways. It doesn't mean that. Right? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was very secure in who he was. But again, he did so without bragging about himself. He'd even talk about himself. You know when he got the woman in adultery? Well, he didn't kind of catch it, but the, the Pharisees did. Remember, they drug her and they threw her down in the dirt in front of him and basically demanded he tell them what they should do. And they all knew what the law of Moses said. The law of Moses said that you catch a couple in adultery, you, you stone back both of them, uh, kill them both. Well, they only brought the woman. Who knows why they didn't bring the man? Some speculate they didn't bring the man because the whole thing was a setup from the beginning. Maybe, maybe not. We, we don't know. That, that could be true. But nonetheless, they brought the woman. So when Jesus then said, he who is without sin cast the first stone, we all know how the story goes. Everybody left. Nobody was there. So when everybody was gone, Jesus then asked the woman, where are your accusers? Now, there's nothing in there that indicates that she was innocent. She's not innocent. She's guilty. She's a guilty woman. And she says, there's no one left but you. And what did he say? I don't condemn you either. And then he speaks with authority and says, go. And he also says, sin no more. So he spoke with humility and kindness. He forgave sin, but he didn't say, it's not a big deal. He didn't say that. He didn't say, it's okay. He didn't say that either. He made it clear that she was to stop what she was doing. So he was able to exercise his authority. So as a parent, you know, when you're correcting your children, you don't have to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really your boss, you know, but I'm your parent. I'm supposed to know. You're the parent. You're the authority in your life. You, you tell them what it is they need to know and what they need to do. That's what you do. You don't have to do it in a brag, brag, braggadocious way. You don't have to do it in a mean way. You know, you don't have to threaten them kind of a thing. You don't have to do all that. You are the authority in their life. Now, they may still rebel against that, and there's ways to respond to that, but we don't, you, know, you don't pick up a baseball bat and say, you will do what I say. You don't have to do all that. All right, so we want to make sure then that as we, that, well, and you may be, I mean, if you're the boss in business, whatever it happens to be, we, we can, you can still fire people if you have to, if they're not doing their job right. But, then, but you don't have fun doing that, and you still care about that individual. You want that individual to do well. You want them to understand. You want them to learn. Now, they may reject all of that, but that's on them. But again, the idea here is that we, there's this humility that is a very deep-seated uh, uh, humility. It's genuine, all right, that, that comes from the inside out. Then, of course, it's mentioned what we already said. So we have all this humbleness in Jesus. because of the obedience of Jesus, it says, therefore God 
has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So even though Jesus did all these things and he didn't cling to the fact that he was God, he is to be worshipped. He is to be glorified and he is to be honored. And God the Father is going to make sure that happens. God, it says, God then exalted him. God did that. God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. When it says that, every knee should bow, that's not just speaking of believers. That's every knee. Those in hell will bow on their knee before the Lord. They'll do that. Now, they've rejected him, but the fact that he is God doesn't change. Period. They will, in a sense, be forced to acknowledge the truth. And so there's a day coming when every creature, it says that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Oh, every knee where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or that Jesus the anointed one or Jesus the Messiah is Lord or is master to the glory of God the Father. So that's, that's what God has done for Jesus. The idea there, and I think we see this in other passages, is that we know there's a day coming when we will be exalted. Now, that exalt, we're not going to be exalted like Christ, because we're not Christ. But there's a day coming when we will be rewarded. We know that. There's a day coming when we will rule with Christ. Uh, that's going to be acknowledged by God. We don't have to worry about those things. God takes care of those things. It's the same way that it is when it, when it comes to the way that you live your life or your job is you don't have to worry about other, you don't have to worry about you trying to find a way to look good in front of others. You let God take care of that. Let others take care of that. Remember Jesus told the story about uh, people being invited to this party at a, at a house, and there's a concern among some to sit in what they call the best seats. So the best seats basically is you want to be closest to whoever the, the, whatever the head table is or the, the most important person. So if there's a, a party at someone's house, the most important person would be the family that lives there. They're the ones throwing the party. So the goal is you want to be as close to where they sit as possible. And the idea with that is that when others see where you're sitting, they go, ah, oh, yeah, I, 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 knew, I knew so-and-so knew him really well. That's why he's there. They, you're in a prominent position and everyone is aware of your prominence based on where you're seated. So Jesus says that when it comes to this, basically don't be in a hurry to sit at, at, as close as you can to the head. In fact, just sit far away. Very practical reason why. Number one, you don't want to be this guy. You don't want to be this guy where he says, uh, Ron is sitting right next to me and I go, Ron, dude, I, I need you to move. Uh, that's where Matt's sitting. Everyone sees that. That's very humbling. And so Ron's hands up and I go, there's a seat over there. <laughs> All right, wherever it happens to be. So everyone sees that he's, in a sense, being demoted. And everyone's very much aware that he is being promoted. Right? And, and what's being... What's being expressed is it's not who knows me it's who do I know that's kind of the idea who I know 
I don't know if you are into actors or stuff, but um, there's some actors that are super, they got really big personalities, and so they're very popular, especially among the young people. So there's a guy named Dwayne Johnson. He's called The Rock. So if I was to tell all you guys that, yeah, I know him, you're like, yeah, everybody knows him, Bob. You know, everybody paid 10 bucks to go watch him on the screen, you know, kind of a thing. But let's say that we have some kind of church outing, and we're at Forsyth Park, and for whatever reason, he's there. And everyone knows that he's there, and even Christians can be starstruck, you know, because this individual's got this big personality. And if all of a sudden he says, hey, Bob, how you doing? Most people go, whoa, he knows Bob? <laughs> be the last thing you would expect. But that would, so for me to say I know him, no big deal. He explains he knows me, now I'm a big deal. Go, Why didn't you say anything? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> All right, so that's the story that Jesus tells. So he says, then when you go to this party, just sit over there. If they don't move you, no skin off your back, right? But if they do move you, and everyone sees that you've moved up, because everyone knows what this is about. When it comes to the seating arrangements, that was a real big deal. In our society, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. All right? So, when you, so if you have to get up and you have to move, even if it's not right next to the guy, but they move you closer, everybody's aware of that. So that's the idea uh, behind that. And so the Lord will take care of that. Now, I believe even on a much more practical level, it's true in this way. When we serve the Lord, no matter what the capacity is, because we are human beings, we all need encouragement. We like to be encouraged, right? Nothing wrong with that, okay? And sometimes, if we don't feel like we're getting enough encouragement, we can have a bad attitude, which is a bad attitude. You don't want to have that. That's, that's selfish, I think, right? I'm not saying that it's not genuine that your feelings are hurt, but you need to, I would just say you just need to get over that. Uh, kind of a thing. I think that's important. But here's the point. I believe that when you truly need encouragement, God will make sure you get it. So you may not get as much as you would like, but you will get what you need. All right? So if you need a lot of it, so if God knows you need a lot of encouragement, you're going to get it. If God knows you just need a little bit, you're going to get that little bit. All right? But if you leave it to him, then there's less stress in your life. And there's also a whole lot less disappointment. You can't be disappointed if you're not expecting anything. Right? You can't be disappointed because you're not expecting nothing. Now, that can be hard to get there. But we do, it, it does need to be this thing that it doesn't really matter what others are thinking. We are serving God. Just like in your marriage, what it should be is it should be that you want to serve your wife or you want to serve your husband. And it doesn't matter who else sees. All right? You're not serving them so others say, Wow. You are such a great husband. Yeah. <laughs> Tell her that. You know, no, we don't want to do that. All right? But the idea is, is that we should be so wrapped up with that person and our love and concern for them, we don't care if anybody sees or not. We're going to, we're going to do what needs to be done. And sometimes we can get bitter toward our spouse if we don't think even they appreciate what we're doing. And that can happen. We're human beings, right? We let each other down. All the time, we let each other down. And so sometimes we can. We can take each other for granted. That can happen. Right? But again, we are to be Christians all the time, which includes at home with your husband or your wife. We need to be forgiving, we need to be kind, and need to pray, 
and let the Lord work most of those things out. There may be time to bring up some of that stuff. There's a, there's a way to do that. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're checking ourselves and that we're not coming from this, you know, this position of, of righteousness uh, to point out all the things that the other person is doing wrong. And that can be very hard because, uh, you know, in, in a very intimate relationship, husband and wife, the pain they bring or the hurt they bring is deeper than anybody else's. That, that, that's the, a fact of life. So it's more difficult to deal with those things. But as we grow as Christians, all right, there, in a sense, there's a toughening up of being overly sensitive. So we're not overly sensitive without becoming desensitized. Because if you can become desensitized, you can become desensitized then to their needs. And we don't want that to happen. So there's a, there's a delicate balance there. What is that? Read the Bible, follow what it says. I believe the Lord will, will bring that about as you grow as a believer and then as you grow in your relationship with your husband or your wife. But these attitudes or, and this mindset that he's talking about, again, is, again, not just for public display. display. It's how we are to be all the time. I am convinced this by itself is enough. It's overwhelming. This is just, I mean, I, I, I know I fail at this. You can ask Cindy. Well, don't ask her. But uh, the idea is, is that we can fail at this. But this is what God wants us to do. And so we need to be thinking in that way. So it's not just, again, for us to know this stuff so we can explain it to someone else. It's not just so we can know these things so we can tell our kids what kind of Christians they should be. This is not just enough for us to be able to tell some class we're teaching what kind of Christians they should be. This is telling us what we need to be as individuals and what our attitude is to be as well as our outward behavior. But most of what he's talking about here is what arises from the inside. There's not, there's not, a, there's not a list of things to do. This isn't like, do these ten things for your husband and wife and they will love you forever. That's not what it says. He says you need to be humble. This is the kind of humbleness that you need. This is the kind of humbleness that Christ had. And this is the example that you ought to follow. And from that, then, I believe, uh, many great joys and, a, and a, a great sense of contentment follows. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your goodness and your kindness and your grace and your patience with us. Father, we ask that as we read through this passage here in chapter 2 of Philippians, that, Father, we'll take these things to heart and that we will think about them often. That, Father, we will recognize areas where we falter or areas of weakness. We pray, Lord, you would help us to truly desire to want to submit to what your word says. And we ask, Father, that you would give to us a, a strong desire to submit to what your word says, to really, to really want to pursue humbleness in this way. We know, Lord, that the evil one wants to, wants to take advantage of this, take advantage of either our, maybe our immaturity, uh, take, take advantage of maybe our sensitivity. A lot of things that can go on with this, Father, that the evil one can latch on to. And, Father, we don't want to give in to that, and so we know we need your help. And so, Father, we know that when it comes to the, the basics of the Christian life, we, 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 we must be determined to do the things that need to be done. And that's spending time in your word and spending time in prayer and spending time with other believers. So Father, I pray that you give to us a, a, not only a great love for that and a great desire for that, but even if necessary, Father, you give to us a sense of, of urgency uh, that we, maybe even desperation, that we must have these things if we want things to go well. So Father, we thank you that you are a God who forgives. We know, Lord, that we have failed you 
probably many, many times, yet you still extend to us your favor, and we are grateful. Keep us safe, Father, as we go home. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.